We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. He was like Dick Whittington. In 1835, a young boy of 14 set off walking to Paris, looking for a job and to learn a trade. Today, his company, Louis Vuitton, is a 42 billion dollar a year brand in a conglomerate with Moet and Hennessy. But what of its past that it doesn't want to talk about? A past during the dark days of World War II when France was occupied by the Nazis. Follow me back to the time when Adolf Hitler ruled Europe and it didn't look like that was going to change any time soon. I can tell you that you were very, very unlikely to have heard Edith Piaf singing this song after May 1940 when the Germans had conquered France. The song lyrics tell of a happier time for the French, a time when they were confident of beating the Nazis, the Bosch, again. And some of the lyrics read, I can't stand Hitler. The Nazis seem to forget that we were the people who slammed them in the First World War. Edith Piaf had recorded that song after World War II had started, but before the shock of the collapse of France just eight months later. Probably by accident, one day, after Paris was occupied by the Germans, French radio presenter Pierre Higuel accidentally played the B-side of one of Edith Piaf's records, and that song went out on the air. It seems that nothing happened to him. He was a lucky man. And now we're off to Paris with the 14-year-old Louis Vuitton. He's not especially looking for love, though he'll find it eventually with Clemence Émilie Pariot. It's a trip that is going to take him two years to complete with many stops along the way, getting jobs to earn enough money to head off on the next stage of his long and difficult trip. So in 1835, he left his village of Anchet, a small hamlet in eastern France's mountainous, heavily wooded Jura region, about 500 kilometres from Paris. He finally reached Paris in 1837. It was a long walk. Louis found a job with Monsieur Marichal, who had a business that specialised in making boxes and packing for travellers to carry their luggage. I'm often horrified myself by the way that luggage is handled at airports, but those guys would need to take a large sledgehammer to the luggage to come close to how luggage was handled back in Louis' day. After 17 years with Monsieur Maréchal, becoming a qualified tradesman and then gaining experience in his trade, Louis felt that it was time to open his own business. The year was 1852. he just been appointed as the personal trunk maker to Empress Eugénie de Montillo, the wife of Napoleon III. 
His duties to the Empress included being responsible for the packing of her clothes for transportation between the Tuileries Palace, the Chateau de Saint-Cloud, and various other seaside resorts. His services to the Empress were appreciated and exceptionally competently discharged. This brought him considerably more business from other royalty and others of the most successful business people and entrepreneurs in France. He found premises at 4 Rue Neuve de Capuchine, near the Place Vendôme. In 1858, Louis Vuitton put onto the market his signature piece of luggage that transformed the burgeoning world of travel. Up until then, standard trunks had rounded tops. Louis' rectangular-shaped trunks meant that they were stackable. His trunks also allowed garments to be hung upright, leaving them in perfect condition to wear without ironing when the trunk was opened. Louis' business was a success, and in 1859 he was able to move to larger premises at the now iconic home of Louis Vuitton at Asnières, just northeast of the centre of Paris. The property also doubled as the actual home of Louis Vuitton and his family. He started there with 20 employees, showing how quickly his business had grown. By the beginning of World War I in 1914, Louis Vuitton had 225 employees. Now that the business was underway, and with a son and heir to follow in his footsteps, the business of Louis Vuitton was set for its great expansion. Louis' son, Georges, made the most visible and lasting presence to the Louis Vuitton brand, apart from the great products. After his father's death in 1892, Georges tried to stop the problem of people pirating their products. Can you believe that? In 1896, he hit on the idea of branding all of the Louis Vuitton products with a monogram stamped all over them. He designed the LV letters with flowers and brown leather. It was perhaps the first time ever that a product came up with a distinctive logo. It was groundbreaking and remains the universally known branding of Louis Vuitton today. As far as stopping pirating, I have to say that it doesn't seem to have been a great success. Georges' mind was obviously working overtime in that year because the next thing he did was to patent the distinctive single lock system with two spring buckles. It was an undisputedly great design and it's still used on Louis Vuitton trunks to this day. It turned the Louis Vuitton trunk into an impenetrable treasure chest. So confident was Georges about the fact that his lock couldn't be opened except by the owner that he published posters around the world challenging the greatest escape artist then or ever to be locked inside one of his trunks and to escape from it. Harry Houdini didn't rise to the challenge. Perhaps he knew he'd met his match. A song by Edith Piaf, a defiant song by the French, spitting in the faces of the Germans who were daring to line up to fight a rematch of World War I, warning Herr Hitler that the French had thrashed the Germans before and would do it again. Well, that turned out to be sadly optimistic in the face of one of the most daringly brilliant military feats of arms in the history of the world by the Germans. France fell down like a pair of panties when the elastic had perished. Hitler could never make up his minds how he wanted to treat the French, like enemies or like a country that might become an ally.
For the first few years, the Germans allowed the French to be in control of a large part of the country that became known as Vichy. The leader of Vichy France was Maréchal Philippe Pétain. Pétain was a legendary figure in France. He was the victor of the nine months long Battle of Verdun. He took over command of the French armies in 1916 and brought France to a victorious end to the Great War, which was more than you could say about the leaders that had just lost so dramatically to the Germans. It was because of the high regard that Pétain was held in in France that he became the leader of the new rump French government of Vichy in June 1940. The capital of the new government was chosen as Vichy, a city centrally located in the new Free France, and one that was well situated to that role because of its profusion hotels to service the people who came there for the spas. One of the outstanding hotels in Vichy was the Hôtel du Parc. It was in the heart of the spa town. Some parts of the new government set up there. Pétain made the hotel the site of his new private apartments from which to run the government. For security reasons, the shops that were all located on the ground floor of the hotel were all required to find other premises. These stores included such exclusive brands as the jeweller Van Cleef and Arpels. But there was one exception. Well, there was only one store that was permitted to continue business in this most perfect of locations, and that was Louis Vuitton. The company at that time was headed up by Louis Vuitton's grandson, Gaston. It seems that Gaston had views sympathetic to the new regime. The Third French Republic had been an extremely left-wing one. The fall of that government was probably not bad news for many. It's easy to be morally superior today from a distance of 80 years from what was happening in France back during the war. For the sake of the business, Gaston wanted to win the favour of the new regime. Gaston asked his older brother, Henri, to mix and cuddle up with the Vichy government. That didn't seem like it was a big ask for Henri. Louis Vuitton started producing various collector and commemorative items celebrating the new Vichy regime. The one that's always commented on is the 2,500 official bus of Maréchal Pétain. Henri was already a regular at a coffee shop that was the favourite haunt of the German secret police, the Gestapo. Henri became one of the first Frenchmen to be decorated by the Nazis for his loyalty to and efforts made on behalf of the new Vichy Nazi government. Very little is known about how close the ties of the Louis Vuitton business was to the Nazis and the Vichy regime. It seems undoubted that the business prospered while competitors who weren't so accommodating suffered. Okay, so you can't buy Louis Vuitton at Walmart. As Julius Caesar once said, you can't believe everything you read on the internet. So this story might not be true, but I want it to be. It was said that the famous unsinkable Molly Brown, who was on the Titanic, had the only piece of luggage that survived that sinking. The luggage was, of course, a Louis Vuitton trunk. Anything short of a nuclear blast maybe would not destroy it. And here are some companies that Louis Vuitton owns that you might have heard of, but you didn't know that Louis Vuitton owned them. For curiosity value, the wine label Chateau Diquem is the oldest brand in the Louis Vuitton stable. It was founded in the 16th century. That's 
the Renaissance. In 2018, Louis Vuitton reported that they had total revenue of nearly 76 billion Australian dollars. Louis Vuitton and Moe Hennessy merged in 1987. In 1986, Louis Vuitton acquired the Verve Clicquot company. That company goes back to the late 18th century. It's credited with inventing rosé champagne, an idea perfected by Philippe Clicquot, adding red wine during the champagne-making process. In 2018, 64.9 million bottles of champagne made by Clicquot were sold. In 2013, Louis Vuitton acquired about 80% of the stock in the Marc Jacobs company. In 1994, Louis Vuitton acquired the Guerlain company. It had been founded in 1828 by Pierre-François Guerlain, selling high-end perfume fragrances. Some of its most famous perfume products include Chalimar, Champs-Élysées and Insolence. In 1999, Louis Vuitton bought the tag Hoya Company. The company was founded by Swiss watch innovator Eduard Hoya, who patented his first timepiece in 1882. It featured the triple chronograph design, now copied by many other watch manufacturers. Hoya merged in 1985 with Technique d'Avant-Garde, the tag in the Hoya. In 2011, Louis Vuitton acquired a controlling interest in Bulgari, Bulgari was founded by Greek immigrant Sotirios Bulgaris in 1884. Bulgari is famous for creativity and colourful jewellery designs, especially the La Dolce Vita line. Its flagship headquarters is an historic landmark building in Rome and one of its most visited attractions. Other companies in the Louis Vuitton stable include Fendi and Sephora. Thanks for joining me, Paul. In this Danger Zone program, more famous fashion designers coming up in other programs. Don't miss them. If you have any questions about anything in this program, maybe you could catch up with me for my guided tour at the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum on Saturday morning starting at 10.30am. Probably the world's best guided tour of an Armour and Artillery Museum, borrowing the Danish Kulzberg slogan for their beer. If you missed this program, you can catch up with it as a podcast on Spotify, Apple, and many other sites. Search for The Danger Zone, bracket, DZ, close bracket. And if you like this program, you'll definitely love my other program, CYKIAE, also available on the same podcast sites.